Matthew 12, beginning in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Be seated. While Jesus was speaking to the multitudes about how evil a generation that his generation was, in that they were, unwilling, they were always seeking signs, but neglecting to understand that he was the Messiah. And while he was speaking to this generation of, of the nature of that generation, someone says to him, Your mother and your brothers are wanting to talk to you, Jesus. Many uh, speculations as to concerning this. Well, one, some of the uh, conjecture, why wasn't his mother and his brothers listening to his preaching? Why weren't they part of the crowd? Some have conjectured the fact that they were kind of a, a way to divert Jesus' attention, attention away from what he was saying about that generation. It is kind of amazing Jesus' response, wasn't it, to the question. Your mother, your brothers want to talk to you, Jesus. We know how busy Jesus was. Now, it, we read the text. Was Jesus totally insensitive to his mom, his brothers? Did Jesus sin in this? Well, of course not. Jesus is the God-man. He wasn't insensitive to his mother or his brothers. It wasn't, yeah, he's been uh, very uh, busy preaching of the kingdom of God. Mother and brother wanted to spend some time. He chose an awkward time to want to do this. But Jesus, uh, some might look at this and say, well, it seemed like he was insensitive to his kindness given the cold shoulder to his mother, of all things, his mother wants to talk to you. If your mom wants to talk to you, drop everything. Well, that wasn't Jesus' attitude. This is one of the most decisive places in all of the Word of God that demonstrates what are the demands of being a disciple of Jesus. What it means to be a genuine Christian. What it means to be a believer in Christ. That's what he's uh, getting at here. I'm sure that many of you have heard this idiom. Blood is thicker than water, right? Y'all heard that. And what is meant by that, this proverb is used to usually imply that family ties, blood, are more important, thicker, that is, than those among your friends, water. 
It generally means that the bonds of family and common ancestry are more stronger than the bonds between unrelated people, such as friendships. That's usually what is meant by that idiom, blood is thicker than water. Well, according to the kingdom of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not true. I will put all of us to a test today. Well, I'm not going to put you to a test, but God's word will put you to a test here. How important is your faith to you? How valuable is your Jesus to you that you claim to believe in? How important is God's law to you, which is the revelation of God's holy character to mankind? Because that's what his law is. It is the revelation of God. Now we're told in the scripture that God does not tempt any man, but the scripture does say he does test his people. So there's a difference between tempting people and testing them. And God will... As to the nature of their allegiances, that's the, that's the whole purpose of a test throughout Scripture. Where is your allegiance? And God, through a test, will always find out where our real allegiance is. God tested Israel many times. He tested them in the wilderness. And unfortunately, most of Israel failed in that test. He said, I tested you for 40 years in the wilderness. I, I, I fed you. I did wonders in the wilderness to you. And what did you do? You hardened your heart against me. And most of you, the scripture says, in Hebrews 3, 1 Corinthians 10, most of you did not really believe in your heart. Though the word was near you, you didn't really appropriate it to yourself. You failed the test. He found out, and God's always doing that, and he will continue to do that in our lives. He's going to bring certain tests in your life. This is not a maybe, it's a guarantee. He will bring tests, and he's going to find out where your utmost allegiance is. Is it to yourself? Is it to your family? Is it to your country? He's going to find out. God is saying this. This is what Jesus is saying. If your blood ties, if your family means more to you than being a Christian, then you have failed the test. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that a person is not a genuine Christian, per se, a thing, but it does show this, a woeful lack of holiness and a great disappointment, of course, to the Lord Jesus, whom the person is saying they believe in. It's a great disappointment to the Lord. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? We're going to jump ahead in Matthew here for a moment. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, 36 through 40. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The greatest, foremost commandment, do you love me with all your heart? All of your, your thinking, with your mind, with your strength, everything that you do, do you do it for the distinct purpose of serving your Lord Jesus? Is he number one in your life? That is the great commandment. And Jesus is making it clear in our text. He's, he's testing people and he's telling us a great theological truth here. Where our priorities need to be. So your relationship to Jesus is the most important relationship in your life exceeding all other relationships. That's what it's supposed to be. I mean, it must exceed all blood ties. It must uh, exceed any kind of relationship as precious as is a husband and wife relationship. It must exceed that. It must exceed any kind of relationship love that you have to your parents. It must exceed any kind of love that you have to your children. You cannot put any of these things ahead of allegiance to Christ. Now, the Scripture talks about the necessity, husbands loving their wives, as Christ loved the church, and wives submitting to their husbands, uh, loving their children, uh, leaving the inheritance for their children, doing good to those. But the bottom line is this, the, the relationship that is foremost must consciously be my relationship to Jesus. That's where I've got to be thinking all the time. And I evaluate all relationships, all my activities in light of that relationship. Brethren, if there is even a hint of hesitation in your answer as to what is more valuable to you, then your love for the Lord Jesus is not what it ought to be. And he's testing you to see and to bring you to the realization. And scripturally, he's wanting to bring us to the point where we acknowledge he is number one in my life. And yes, there are many times in which we may sin, but we ask for forgiveness of the Lord Jesus and he will forgive us. If we, when we evaluate our relationship, we find ourselves lacking in that regard. But we must diligently strive with every fiber of our being for that relationship to be foremost. Now consider this for a moment. Why, why should Jesus be the most important thing in your life? And you may think, well, that's a silly question, John. Well, I, I don't think it's that silly to ask. Let's consider the state in which you and I in that the scripture says. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. As the scripture says, uh, there is no one who can arouse themselves to take hold of thee. 
We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As the scripture says, we are without hope in this world. That's the state we're in. Why should Jesus be the number one uh, relationship? Because without his atoning work, you and I would be in hell forever. Now, I don't know of any greater motivation than that. We owe everything to Jesus. Being a good Presbyterian that you are, you understand the relationship of, God, uh, of predestination and election. It's not at odds against man's will, but we understand that no one can come to Christ unless God shows mercy to them. As John Newton wrote in that great hymn, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me, the former slave owner, found Christ, painfully aware of, of his great sinfulness, but that with Christ's atoning work, he found favor in the sight of God. Why should Jesus be number one in your life? Because he died for you. And remember what the scripture says in Romans 5 eight. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that passage it says, perhaps a man may die for someone who does good, but rarely or if never will you find someone dying for an unworthy individual. But that's what the case is. We were all unworthy. We, are, we were the reprobates. We were the, uh, the ones in rebellion. And those are the people whom Jesus loved. So you owe him everything. You owe him everything. That's why in Second Corinthians you'll see sometimes when we observe the Lord's Supper, how many times have I mentioned what Second Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, live for him who died for you. That's our moral obligation. <clears throat> you see, the fact that we will have an inheritance, the fact that Jesus gave, this, gave his life for us, and the fact that he has given us an inheritance that Peter talks about that's unfading, without blemish, precious in the sight of God, where God personally defends us, he protects us. Uh, this great mansion that Jesus is preparing for his people. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. All of this is a motivation why Jesus' our relationship to him must be foremost. In our text, when the question was asked, were said to him, Your mother and your brothers want to talk to you. Jesus publicly, publicly said what he did. If you look at our text again, what did he say? Who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, now these are his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. They're my mother and my brothers. wasn't denying the relationship to his, uh, his mother Mary, who was privileged of God to give birth to him. 
he wasn't now setting aside any kind of uh, relationship to his his blood brothers, but he's making it very clear of what is more important. The thrust of the passage is our spiritual relationships are of greater value, ultimately, in one sense, than our blood ties. Now, one of the things, although this isn't the thrust of the passage, I feel like I I need to address this nonetheless. The Bible does not present Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the way that Roman Catholicism pictures her. Rome teaches that Mary was born without sin. It's called the Immaculate Conception. That's the doctrine. It's heresy because when it says that she was not a sinner, she did not inherit original sin. Also, Rome teaches what's called the assumption of Mary that she did not, her body did not see corruption like all other human beings, so she was like Jesus who did not see corruption. Also, Rome teaches that Mary is co-mediatrix with the Lord Jesus in the salvation of sinners, that she, the merit that supposedly she has by being the mother of Jesus, somehow is able to go out to sinners, and if you pray to her, there is grace that you get. She is a mediator along with her son, Jesus. Although we find this, if you turn with me in Luke chapter 2, turn over to Luke chapter 2, look at verses 41 through 52. And his parents, talking about Jesus' parents, and his parents used to go up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished, And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Stop right there. You know, the idea is, is what has Jesus done to us? I mean, he stayed behind. He's not with us. He's in Jerusalem. That's what it took three. First of all, they were a day's journey away. So it took a a day to get back. And then it says after three days, they found him. Imagine how the parents were feeling. For four days now, they can't find their son Jesus. So when they finally find him, why have you treated this 
this way. Now, did Jesus, is he insensitive to his parents? Did, did, did he, uh, like some of our kids, as well, they, they weren't being numbered when they should have been on the caravan and they got left behind? Was it like that? No. Jesus said, why is it that you were looking for me? Well, they've been gone four days. But he still says, why are you looking for me? This is a 12-year-old now. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And it says that Mary, and they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The whole thing here is 12-year-old Jesus is in the temple, amazing, the 12-year-old, amazing people with his questions and answers. Well, after all, he is the Son of God. He will be amazing people, even as a 12-year-old. But he makes it very clear to his parents, I'm about my father's business, God's business. I'm in the temple where I need to be. And they said they didn't fully understand this, although keep this in mind, Mary and her Magnificat, Magnificat that's uh, mentioned there in Luke, does understand when God, uh, the angel, revealed to her uh, who she was carrying was none other than the Son of God. She did, she makes some great professions. She makes some great, glorious statements as a young maiden. Now, Mary wasn't, some believe that Mary might have been 13 years of age when she gave birth. In those times, that's not unusual, but this is a young woman who has a great understanding. But she, she doesn't fully understand all that Jesus said, but Jesus is making it clear at the outset I must be about my father's business. And yeah, I know I wasn't with you, but I have a greater task ahead of me. And by the way, concerning the fact that uh, we made the comment that Rome believes that Mary was without sin, well, that's kind of odd, seeing that uh, they come up, for example, when Jesus was born, they, they, they go to Jerusalem. And they, uh, when, depending on whether you had a male child or a female child, you had to go through, the woman had to go through rites of purification. They had to give uh, sacrifices. And guess what Mary gives, according to Leviticus 12? She is giving a sin offering. Why does someone without sin give a sin offering? They don't do that. So this whole idea that Mary is without sin is a made-up doctrine, has no basis in Scripture. <clears throat> By the way, Rome does teach us, you know, why, uh, I don't know if you knew this, there are more prayers to the mother Mary than there are to Jesus. And one Roman Catholic theologian said, the reason for that is this. Everybody knows if you want to get at the Son you want the son to do something, go to his mom, because every good boy listens to his mother. 
And therefore, if you go to his mother, his mother can convince the son. Now, this is a theologian that says this. Now, <clears throat> also, the script, uh, Rome teaches in the perpetual virginity of Mary. However, <clears throat> meaning that she uh, did not have sexual relations the rest of her life. The problem with that is, it says... Jesus had brothers and sisters. You know how they get around that one? It's not brothers or sisters, it's their cousins. That's not what the scripture says. Brothers and sisters. And interesting, in, in this whole regard, talking about family relationships, uh, turn over to, to John 7. And look at verses 1 through 8. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does any anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, uh, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, but its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time is not yet fully come. So even uh, his brothers, his half-brothers, did not fully understand all of who Jesus is and his, his mission. Now, I've said all of this about Mary. I've said all of this about his brothers and sisters, not as some rabbit trail of what Rome's teaching about Mary, but simply to show that all human relationships need to be put into their proper perspective, and Jesus does that in this text that we're looking at today. When Jesus said that his mother and his brothers were his disciples, this demonstrates that spiritual relationships are of greater value ultimately than our blood ties. Christians, as you are aware of, are part of the family of God, the scripture says. We are adopted into the family of God. We are the household of faith. That's why historically Christians have referred to one another as brother and sister when they see them. Because they understand we are a part of a family that takes precedence even over the other. Perhaps you have experienced this as a reality in your own life. Perhaps you have, may have had an older couple, Christian couple, that you have been closer to than your own blood parents. I don't know. You may have experienced that. Some godly Christian older couple that you have admired and have greatly ministered to you and in many ways... You're closer to them than your own parents. This is not uncommon. 
And there is nothing wrong with that, in fact. This is not to say that we abdicate any kind of responsibility to our parents. We don't abdicate responsibility to our children, our blood children. But we must understand that the most important relationship in our life is not to our spouse, not to our children. It is to Christ, his church, to his church. When it comes to the law of God, blood ties do not trump the law of God. Let's turn to a passage, Deuteronomy 21. This may seem like an odd passage to turn to. Turn to Deuteronomy 21. Look at verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, he will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it in fear. It's got to be an awfully bad situation, does it not, for parents to turn over a child to civil authorities to deal with? Now, it doesn't mean they just take the word of the parents. You've got to bring in the rest of Scripture. They would investigate to see if indeed the son is a rebellious, glutton, and drunkard like the parents say. But for the parents to ultimately turn over a child only to see that child put to death means it's a serious situation. But here's what it does show. These parents are more concerned about what? the law of God than a relationship with their child. That's what it shows. We can't put the, we can't put relationships, no matter what they are, below the law of God. The law of God must be followed even if it's done to things like this. So God's law trumps all blood relationships. You know, a practical example of this, more so, we're not seeing parents taking children to civil authorities to have the civil authorities uh, execute them because we don't live in a godly society anymore. But probably a, a better, I mean, a, a more uh, way that we see it practiced more often today is that when um, children, because of their refusal to repent of some sin, they are excommunicated by the church of the Lord Jesus. So, now in this regard, when this happens, when this happens, we see that um, how is a parent supposed to treat 
an excommunicated child. Well, you know, one thing we see when parents are willing to carry through. Now, we're assuming that the excommunication is a godly thing. It was the right thing. The child deserved it. So, when that happens, when a parent honors the excommunication, it is a powerful influence. I know personally in the church where a son was excommunicated, and you know, finally, the son will repent. And we'll come back and we'll be you reunited to the church. But you know what was the, was the thing that broke the son? Was when his own mother said, I will not have relationships with you. Like a mother and child until you repent. When his own mother followed through on that, that's what broke him. But you see, what was the mother doing? The mother was putting, what, Christ above the child. The mother was choosing the law of God above the human relationship. And God honored that. You see, the test of the Lord is this. This is how the Lord will test us. Is the honor of Christ and his church more important than any blood relationship? He's going to test us along the way. Now, we've already seen, we looked at this passage in Matthew chapter 10, but it's, it's probably worthy for us to make mention of it again. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 34 through 39. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Now, in this context, Jesus is talking about what it really means to be a disciple, a Christian. He is saying here, in, in this particular area, he says, if you put these human relationships above me, he says, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me. i got to be number one in your life. No blood ties can trump relationship between me and you. Now, so, your own father, mother, children, any kind of relationship that says cannot be greater than your relationship to Christ. And you'll find out. You know, this corresponds very closely. Turn over to Luke 14. We've looked at this passage before. Look at Luke 14, verses 25 to 27. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So it's apparent from this, this context here that these, these blood relationships cannot be more meaningful to a person than their relationship to, to Christ. In other words, our love for Jesus has to be of such magnitude that it, it appears as if it's hate to our parents. Meaning that our relationship to Christ trumps everything. And if it comes down between choosing parents or children over Christ, we'll always choose Christ. <coughs> Jesus says that's what it means. Now, you can understand how Christianity, how a lot of people, have this warped view of the Christian faith and a lot of this easy believism whereby we just accept and profess Jesus Christ and He'll do good for us and uh, everything will be rosy and, and things of this nature when the reality is it can often be a hard road. Being a Christian means denying yourself. It means taking up the cross, which was a sign of death. It means paying the cost. Jesus says you've got to count the cost if you want to follow me. And it's one reason why some people turned away and didn't want to follow him anymore. The demands of being a Christian are significant. I'm not saying this. Jesus is saying this. Your mother and your brother want to talk to you, Jesus. Behold to his disciples. This is my mother. This is my brothers and sisters. I'm doing the work of the kingdom. See, to hate oneself is to practice self-denial for the sake of Christ. We looked at this passage uh, in Matthew, but let's look at Luke's version. Turn to Luke uh, chapter 9. Look at verse 57 through verse 60. Luke 9, 57 through verse 60. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the uh, air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the, the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now some might think, Jesus being really insensitive here? Keep in mind that Jesus knows men's thoughts. He knows men's hearts. And he knew this man's heart, and he knew this man's thoughts. And that's why Jesus said what he did to him. He wanted to follow Jesus on his own terms, and let me do something first, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it is. That's not how it is in my kingdom. I don't take second place to anybody, not even to your father who's died. He knew the man's heart. You let the dead bury the dead, you follow me. Now, there's a lot of implications of what is meant here. 
But the basic truth that Jesus was conveying is, your relationship to me is foremost, and no relationship is greater than that which is between me and you. Your mother wants to talk to you. No, my mother is all those who I'm ministering to. My brothers and sisters are those who I'm ministering to. Those are my mother, brothers, and sisters. If you look at Matthew in our text, in Matthew 12, verse 50, we see Jesus in verse 50 saying, For whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. They're setting forth the, the great theological truth that these spiritual, relation, spiritual relationships that we have with foremost with Christ and then with his church are more important than blood ties. And essentially, like I said, it doesn't set aside obligations that we have as physical children, I mean, our, to our parents, but it means what needs to be primary. So, genuine Christ, Christianity is not playing games with God at all. It is not like, as some have phrased it, it's not like having a fire insurance policy. I believe in Jesus just to avoid going to hell. Some preachers have said, if that's the reason you believe in Jesus, you're going to end up going to hell because that's not why you believe in Jesus. Yeah, there is an element we don't want to perish forever, but our, our perspective must be, without a doubt, that Jesus is the most important thing. So you take inventory of your life today. Husband, you're willing to give up your wife if that's what it takes? Because of Christ and wife to give up your husband? Willing to give up your children for the sake of Christ? Jesus is going to find out what's more important. Who do you love more? Me or your parents or your children? Which, which are you going to love more? He's saying, love me more. In fact, when you love Jesus the way you ought to love him, you'll be in a better position to love your blood relatives better if you have Jesus as number one. And in a marriage, as long as both partners understand that Jesus is more important than the other, than their spouse, they'll be actually better spouses. <laughs> Believe it or not, they will be. So, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Sold out, and that is the primary relationship. No other human relationship takes precedence over your relationship to Christ. That's how you need to evaluate your life. Let us pray.